Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. This is your host, Phil Ord. And this is your co-host, Colby Kirk. The name of this podcast is called Fresh Air in the Halls of Power. We're going to speak to Brett Rumpal, Nuclear Team Manager at Clean Air Task Force, a research and public advocacy organization that aims to limit the effects of climate change from air pollution. Clean Air Task Force does a bunch of work in Washington and Capitol Hill, as well as state governments, advising our representatives and testifying in congressional committees on effective mitigation policy. Brett talks about what he does for his organization and his focus on nuclear energy as a strategy among many in our climate tool belt. For the wonks out there, we'll also dive into a bit of policy. Here's some info about Brett. He was born and raised in South Florida and attended University of Florida, where he received his bachelor's and master's in nuclear engineering in 2007 and 2009, respectively. While pursuing his master's degree, Brett worked for General Electric, Hitachi, on the Economic Simplified Boiling Water Reactor, ESBWR, and improved predictive methods for operating the boiling water reactor fleet. Upon graduating, he then spent five years working for Westinghouse Electric Company as an engineering project manager and lead core designer for the Millstone 3, North Anna, and Surrey nuclear power plants. In 2013, Brett left Westinghouse and joined NuScale Power LLC, a small modular reactor startup, as a nuclear fuel engineer, a reactor which is a first-of-its-kind design, and he helped with the associated licensing submission to the NRC. Additionally, Brett serves in various volunteer and leadership roles for the American Nuclear Society, ANS, and the University of Florida. He has been previously recognized with the 2012 ANS Presidential Citation as the 2014-2015 University of Florida Leader of the Year, and with the ANS Youth Members Group's Excellence Award. In his free time, Brett is a proud parent of two pit bull mixes, Brandy and Langley, spoiling them relentlessly. He also enjoys tinkering with alternative energy and maintains his own rooftop solar panels to save on his electric bill. Sounds like Brett is quite familiar with both the engineering of nuclear energy systems and the means to get designs approved on the regulatory side as well. 
I've always been curious on how advanced nuclear systems can get licensed and how the regulatory process can be improved to streamline the build-out of new systems. So I look forward to learning about Brett's experience and what he has to share with us today. For sure. I'm glad to see that there are still newer, fresh minds still entering the nuclear field and ready and qualified to take the ropes on clean nuclear energy in America. So much of advancing the case for nuclear involves engaging with and educating policymakers to get the political will to move forward. I'm interested to listen to people that are part of that process. Public advocacy is so important for a nuclear future. Well, let's get started. Here is our friend and guest, Brett Rompal. Well, Brett, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Brett, what was your career before the Clean Air Task Force? Like, do you think your technical experience has been useful in your current job? Um, so, yeah, I worked at you know multiple U.S. vendors uh, in the nuclear industry: General Electric, Westinghouse Electric Company, and then also spent some time at um, a startup. You know, a startup developing you know, future or hopefully future nuclear technology, um, new scale power. And I think that experience and, uh, you know, the, the networking and the contacts gained during uh, my time, uh, it was about 15 years, 12 to 15 years um, across those three companies, um, really, really puts me in a great position for where I'm at in Clean Air Task Force to help my uh, bosses, my colleagues, other people within my organization, and the other stakeholders that we engage with uh, really make educated decisions and be well-informed. What exactly is the Clean Air Task Force, and how did you get involved? So Clean Air Task Force is a 20-plus-year-old environmental clean air-based organization. Uh, We have uh, lawyers, subject matter experts like myself, um, uh, uh, you know, environmentalist uh, experts that have been involved in the field of pursuing clean energy and clean air standards for, you know, most of those 20 years. And the Clean Air Task Force is uh, focused on, like I said, mostly on energy, but on, you know, seeing the U.S., humanity, you know, international community reach those deep decarbonization goals that we're seeing be made and set right now. Uh, The Clean Air Task Force sees, you know, opportunities in pursuing technology-inclusive clean energy standards. So, you know, a clean energy approach that is an all-of-the-above, best-of-the-best, multiple-shots-on-goal sort of approach uh, to decarbonization. And I think that was, you know, how the opportunity for someone like me presented itself to get involved. The previous uh, nuclear innovation director or lead for Clean Air Task Force uh, was Dr. Ashley Finan, who is now 
who went on to be the executive director of the Nuclear Innovation Alliance and who is now the executive director of the National Reactor Innovation Center. Um, Dr. Ashley Finan was actually speaking on a panel of mine that I was hosting at a uh, American Nuclear Society Young Members uh, Group event several years ago. Uh, and I had recently um, left New Scale Power. And so it was just a, you know, a confluence, a great opportunity, great timing. And, you know, uh, uh, I, I, I thank the American Nuclear Society for the connection in a lot of ways, because I I'm not sure that uh, Dr. Finan and I would have been chatting as much at that time had I not uh, been planning that conference that we were doing. So uh, a lot of um, interesting co uh, coincidences and, uh, and similar thinking kind of led me to the Clean Air Task Force. Great. So it's an international thing, not just in America? No, yeah, we're focused on decarbonization uh, all around the world. You know, America is where uh, the organization was started, but uh, we're currently expanding, pursuing, you know, European opportunities as well as opportunities. And uh, we, we previously had a large, uh, you know, organization running in China for a while. Uh, that was before my time, though. Uh, and so, yeah, we pursue... Uh, as many opportunities as we deem feasible or appropriate for that technology inclusive clean energy goal sort of, you know, engagement that I was discussing before. Awesome. And uh, so as a member of the Clean Air Task Force, what kind of things do you do day to day? So my day really varies. Uh, you know, right now during the pandemic, of course, it's it's kind of different than it was before. The uh, before uh, right now, I'm spending a lot of my time on a lot of great webinars, learning and interfacing with experts. A um, couple of not a couple of a couple about a week ago at this point, um, uh, I was happy and lucky enough to participate in a public NRC DOE. Uh, fusion Industry Association Forum on uh, the future of fusion energy licensing and the regulatory environment for fusion energy. Uh, so we pursue uh, continual engagement and education in lots of different fields uh, from, you know, reviewing draft policy and offering, you know, uh, potential uh, comments or edits, as well as uh, my my boss, uh, Armin Cohen, who's the executive director and one of the founders of Clean Air Task Force, uh, testified uh, twice, uh, twice this year so far on uh, nuclear-related legislation. And so those are, uh, you know, rigorous and fun weeks where we're prepping for test, you know, prepping for his testimony and preparing a bunch of testimony to be providing, uh, you know, thoughtful information and engagement to, you know, policymakers. So my day covers, you know, the gamut. I could spend it all day uh, reading, trying to educate myself on a topic that we are interested in. We could have, uh, you know, a donor who we're trying to, you know, engage with on a topic of interest to them. And so I'll spend a lot of time engaging with them as well as, you know, participating in, uh, you know, opportunities to engage in the legislative or, you know, other sort of 
you know, governmental processes like that NRC forum that I was discussing. So it'd be fair to say that um, you guys do interact quite a bit with the political world to uh, educate our uh, policymakers and representatives, right? Well, quite a bit, you know, would be subjective to anybody, you know. So, uh, I mean, it's certainly something that falls into the purview of our organization. Um, We are uh, committed to working with, you know, many, many other organizations on numerous uh, other topics and numerous other uh, you know, sort of policy opportunities and, you know, when those come up and when there's opportunity for pursuing it, um, we, we do so, but, you know, I can go, you know, many months or weeks at a time without, you know, sort of being deep into the trenches of a legislative process or anything like that. Um, but like I said, my boss did testify twice before Congress on, you know, nuclear sort of related, legislation this year. Uh, one of our, one of my other colleagues just recently testified on, um, uh, you know, maritime, uh, the opportunities for decarbonization in the maritime sector, which has a little bit of, you know, uh, you know, overlap in the Venn diagrams with the, you know, nuclear energy at times. So there's lots of opportunities for us to, uh, you know, engage, but I wouldn't say, like I said, it's it's very subjective to say, you know, that's a lot of your time or that's, you know, what we spend a lot of our time on because we spend our time on a lot of different things. Gotcha. Okay. So what is the Clean Air Task Force's philosophy surrounding nuclear energy? So like I alluded to before, um, we see a technology-inclusive clean energy approach as the most pragmatic and economical way to... Uh, you know, achieve the clean energy future and economy that in society that uh, a lot of folks are advocating for and that, um, you know, myself and I, I'd like to believe that you guys and, and many other <laughs> Americans, um, you know, are very interested in, in seeing the United States and, and the world achieve. Uh, and so when you approach it from a technology inclusive clean energy uh, sort of philosophy, uh, there's, you know, quite a large role for nuclear energy to potentially play. Now, I, I heavy emphasis on the potentially because that's more so a question of, uh, you know, products and availability at this point for the larger, you know, world than it is for, um, uh, you know, what the science says or what, uh, you know, um, what the opportunities might be. So we look at nuclear energy as playing a role in sort of that, um, you know, I'm a little older, so I remember the food pyramid and we always like to talk about the food pyramid uh, of kind of, you know, looking at your energy structure that you want, you know, a little of, you know, well, you want everything in the right supply, but it's a large different and spread out sort of uh, paradigm. So nuclear energy certainly plays a role in a technology-inclusive clean energy future, uh, in our opinion. We, and in in our modeling and in the modeling of, you know, our expert allies and colleagues and other organizations, it seems, you know, pretty 
clear, or in a lot of cases, in a lot of regions of the United States, uh, where you know a lot of our modeling is has been done, uh, that achieving high levels of renewables penetrations, you know, your fifties or sixty percent penetrations, uh, may one day be, you know, an economically infeasible approach for where we're at and with everything. And that's where we're moving into. And that, uh, you know, the rest of that area leaves uh, some room for the, you know, at least in the United States, the existing U.S. nuclear fleet to, you know, continue to be operated, you know, thoughts of potential, potential expansion and the, you know, need to replace that fleet as it retires and that's, of course, only talking about electricity. So we right. see, you know, the role of nuclear as as being, you know, multifaceted. So we want to keep the existing fleet and, you know, update it as we can. And uh, this idea of potential expansion. So does uh, the Clean Air Task Force have, like, any ideas or um, anything to offer with, like, how it can or should expand? Uh, well, I mean, I don't think that's... You know, we we think that in order for nuclear deployments to uh, you know happen in a fruitful manner in this in this country, whether that's replacements or expansion, you know, it's going to require a uh, you know a fundamentally different sort of deployment model than we've seen uh, in the most recent nuclear deployments. And, you know, by most recent, I, I of course mean the Vogel and the VC summit, which, you know, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is super close to, you know, the summer site. So that's, you know, uh, a shame certainly, but you know, that's that, you know, that, you know, ratepayers were paying a lot for that and we really need, uh, you know, nuclear products that, you know, can be delivered, you know, effectively, economically, timely fashion, um, because in all honesty, uh, the energy, you know, the, you know, humanity or, you know, America's energy needs and the grid are really not going to wait for, you know, the technology if it takes 20 years or, to, you know, 25 years or 15 years to achieve the, um, you know, the the real sort of, transformative deployments that we're looking for. So it's, 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 it's an opportunity and a challenge in many different ways. Um, and we look at many of the things that the um, uh, newer startup community is pr- pursuing, the newer developer community, because I guess can't really call them startups anymore since they've been around for so long at this point. Um, or I guess you should, I don't know. Um, the, um, the development community is pursuing a lot of different avenues that offer, um, unique attributes and, and different sort of deployment models that can kind of be this, you know, transformative change or, you know, difference that the industry will, will certainly need. And I think that's the way, uh, the clean air, uh, task force sees it. Do you think we okay. could ever get to like the pre three mile island days where we were just building nuclear power plants right and left and it seemed like they were pretty pretty affordable then like are you guys like concerned at all with uh, you know how we can streamline this process Well yeah I mean we have been long time engaged with 
the NRC and you know policymakers, uh, the uh, one of the the um, the risk informed uh, performance based standards and um, uh, uh, changes and rulemaking that the NRC is pursuing right now uh, as a part of you know uh, as a part of requirements issued in NEMA, the Nuclear Energy Innovation and Modernization Act, which Clean Air Task Force, you know, participated in, you know, supporting and was active in, you know, in, in, in pursuing the passage of that as law. Um, that has been a, a great opportunity, we think, for the developers to engage with the NRC and kind of have this important dialogue to express the differences in their technology and additionally for the NRC, both in those venues and, uh, you know, internally to educate themselves to be prepared for uh, reviewing, you know, advanced reactor, non-light water reactor licenses and, you know, issue, you know, licenses in a timely and appropriate and safe you know, predominantly, of course, safe fashion. Uh, so we think that the 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 changes that the NRC pursu- are pursuing are, you know, a thoughtful and appropriate way to be looking at a very different type of technology, and that can be useful in sort of seeing the types of pre Three Mile Island deployments that you're talking about. Um, and it's going to be fundamental just in general in seeing, you know, any sort of deployments in our opinion. Uh, the, the, the developers, um, uh, no, pardon me, the NRC uh, recently uh, um, approved, the, the commission recently approved the staff's approach for the Part 53 rulemaking, which will be the uh, advanced reactor sort of rule for uh, pursuing licenses and uh, the risk-based performance in uh, pr- the risk-informed performance-based approach that is a rule and it will be was originally by NEMA uh, stipulated to be completed final rule by 2027 and the NRC just approved the approach to have it approved in October of 2024. So that's, you know, a, a, a much more aggressive timeline than NEMA. Um, I think it's a, uh, a useful timeline for what many of the developers are talking about. And we're, in addition to talking about the streamlining, or I, I don't like the, I don't, in a lot of ways, I don't like the word streamlining. In a lot of ways, I like, I like to think of it better as right-sizing the regulation, making it more appropriate for, you know, sort of the technologies that we're pursuing now, which, you know, in some cases are different than the technologies that we pursued um, previously. But in addition to that, we see, um, you know, numerous of the DOE, Department of Energy, excuse me, programs that are being pursued as, you know, fundamental for seeing uh, new technology that might, you know, new technology demonstrated that might one day uh, be deployed on the sort of scales that you're talking about. And and those sort of programs are things like the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program, um, you know, the, the HALU development programs that the NRC, that they see me, the DOE is looking at and pursuing currently and, and the uh, Versatile Test Reactor. 
uh, as well as numerous other uh, opportunities. But I, I'll just call those, you know, three out of the Department of Energy real fast. So yeah, Phil, it's going to be a challenge certainly to see those sort of deployments and. Um, you know, uh, uh, electricity in all honesty is, is, is a tough, is a tough market to say, Hey, we want to see these, you know, gigantic deployments, especially, you know, looking at some of the timeframes we're looking at, uh, from the developers, you know, many of them place their developments in the, you know, five to 10, uh, year timeframe. And we've only seen one non-light water reactor, uh, developer really, uh, step out of pre-engagement with the NRC and into, you know, direct, uh, you know, engagement with their, uh, with the Oklo license application. So the, um, you know, th- there's a lot happening now. And in order to see the sort of changes or the, the, the opportunities like what you're talking about, um, a lot really needs to be done in a thoughtful manner and, a, and an appropriate manner now. I see. Um, well, uh, moving on. I hope that answered. I hope that answered your question. I apologize if it was meandering. So, oh no, that's a, a lot of information. Definitely, uh, it's ne- it's never a easy answer. I, I when it comes to to deploying nuclear in in the U.S., it's always going to be kind of a tricky, tricky kind of dance. You know. Yep. Um, moving on. Uh, what are some of the general areas related to nuclear energy you are currently engaged with and are you engaged alone or do you partner up with other pro-nuclear organizations? Sure. Um, So like I alluded to before, um, we collaborate with, uh, you know, other organizations and, and, and ally organizations when appropriate and um, when possible, I should say. Um, for a long time, we've been participating in uh, a coalition, like I said, related to um, you know legislative in- engagement. I talked about NEMA before. There's also NECA, which is the Nuclear Energy Innovation and Capabilities Act, and then a um, a third bill, which has been pursued by this sort of coalition of groups for uh, a, you know a, a while at this point, would be uh, NILA, the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act, which we recently saw portions of included in the um, uh, in the House Energy Package, and um, saw portions included in the. Uh, Senate NDAA, so or new, uh, uh, National Defense Authorization Act. So there's opportunities, uh, you know, with those with with that particular bill, and we participate with a very very broad coalition, including uh, the um, uh, oh I don't want to over you know including uh, you know uh, unions as well as uh, you know organizations like ClearPath and Third Way. And uh, American Nuclear Society, uh, you know, uh, many groups that are both, uh, you know, traditional uh, supporters of existing nuclear power and, uh, you know, future deployments. Uh, In addition to, you know, the regular sort of, uh, and then there's, you know, numerous other bills that we're 
you know, paying attention to and, you know, uh, pay, uh, trying to, uh, as a coalition group, determine what the opportunities are to see uh, the, the best sort of um, uh, provisions passed or to support the best provi- provisions of some of these bills, like uh, the American Nuclear uh, infrastructure Act, I, and I apologize if I get some of these infrastructure innovation, whatever they are. I am dyslexic, and this is a lot of uh, ANEA. We usually remember them by their acronyms, which is the most recent bill that my boss Armand uh, testified about, as well as uh, the Nuclear Energy Research and Development Act, NERDA, uh, my favorite acronym. Uh, which is uh, a proposed uh, draft bill out of the um, uh, House uh, Space Science and Technology uh, Committee. So yeah, lots of things we're looking at legislatively. Additionally, you know, we have long running projects uh, in the areas of, you know, nuclear waste management and um, uh, low-dose radiation research, as well as numerous other areas related to uh, NRC engagement, like I said, related to risk-informed and performance-based regulation for one, that are sort of, uh, I don't want to call them legacy things, but things that we um, uh, uh pursued and advocated for, and now we want to pay attention to and make sure that it happens. So, yeah, I think that's kind of a few areas um, that we're pursuing right now. Um, And um, there's, like I said, there's numerous other groups that we work with. And if we can find, um, you know, people with similar thinking to ours, uh, you know, technology-inclusive, clean energy um, sort of, you know, technology advocacy, then usually um, that as a good starting point is a, a great place for, uh, you know, building relationships and, and, and sort of groups and coalitions and whatever you might need to pursue some of these sort of policy and, and, and research areas that we, we think are important. Okay. So, like, for example, in your opinion, what would you say would be the main barriers to seeing the new uh, increase in the deployment of nuclear energy technologies? Well, number one, I would say the largest barrier right now is an affordable, um, you know, licensed product in the United States, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, the, the AP1000 is, I'm a former Westinghouse employee. Um, uh, the AP 1000 is a great piece of technology and I have no, um, no, uh, no doubt that if, you know, there were, had been more orders or if, you know, more, um, products were pursued to completion, we would see those costs come down. But unfortunately the way the U S uh, energy paradigm seems to be going right now, at least in the near term, as you know, in the near term and in the, the longer term, as we wait for some of these nuclear products to, you know, uh, you know, pursue their regulatory pathways. Um, the U.S. Uh, electricity and energy demand tends to be relatively flat right now. So the only opportunities we're really seeing are 
you know, replacements of retiring fossil a- uh, assets or, um, you know, unfortunately, replacement of, you know, retiring nuclear assets. And the re- existing retiring nuclear assets should operate for a longer time than, you know, they're currently retiring for if you were, uh, you know, looking at it from just a clean energy perspective. Of course, there's economic factors that have driven the closures of these plants. Uh, but economic factors are also going to drive those replacements and the replacements of fossil plants. So it's great that, uh, you know, Westinghouse and, you know, GE have, you know, the AP1000 and the ESBWR licensed as a product in the United States. Uh, but I, you know, no one's banging down the doors to buy them, unfortunately. And what it looks like we're going to need is the, you know, perhaps the more scalable, smaller sort of, you know, plants that can be situated as a replacement to, you know, existing fossil on existing fossil sites or nearby or closer to, um, you know, uh, usage locations in um, uh, hard to decarbonize sectors like the, you know, remote, uh, you know, areas like mining operations or remote communities in the islands or uh, in the north or in Alaska. So really, and honestly, um, and, you know, I, I'm biased and disclaimer, you know, I went to college with the the founder of Oaklo, uh, Jake DeWitt, um, but they have a they have a, a, a quote or a slogan in, in their office, um, or maybe it was the previous office. I, I don't know. I can't keep track of, you know, some of these fast movers sometimes, but it said, build reactors people want to buy. Right. And I think that, yeah, I think that's an interesting, you know, uh, and, you know, just thing to think about because we really need products that people are going to want and what they usually want are affordable things. And what it looks like they're going to want is affordable things on a smaller scale than AP 1000 and ESPWR that can be deployed a little bit more quickly. Yeah. You just, you just, you just see these uh, just incredible cost overruns and it's, it's like, come on, it's gotta be easier than this, but just maybe it's not. Well, well we, the economics too. I tend to call that problem the first of a kind versus end, yeah. end of a kind. Where you know, if you there was a market where somebody bought ten of them, by the time the tenth one is built, there's so much learning and so much scalability and so much standardization that uh, an experience that uh, the costs do come down to some degree. Yeah, and the first of the kind versus nth of a kind um, uh, dilemma and obstacle is you know going to be there for you know, any sort of new technology or, you know, new-ish technology, because I guess this isn't really, you know, new technology if you really wanted to boil it down, but hot oil. Uh, But the the problem here in a lot of cases with the Vogel and the Summer Project was just the level of risk that you're talking about for in – nth of a kind versus, you know, first of a kind product, Um, you know, the, for a large scale, you know, power plant reactor, like the, you know, the, the two units at summer and the two units at Vogel, the cost overruns hurt a lot more, you know, unfortunately. 
So it's it, it, it it's challenging to see what what we're going to have um um uh you know licensed or what is going to be pursued to final license and what is going to be available for you know certification or purchase by some of these vendors um because the 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 need is different than what we currently have and we just need something that's a little different and it may not be affordable the first time or as affordable at the first time. And like you said, it should get more and more affordable each time, but the first one also shouldn't, you know, bankrupt multiple companies and, you know, start legislative battles and lawsuits between, you know, longstanding, you know, decades old U S companies and, you know, causes the folding of them and everything like that. So that's, less of what we need. Really quick, yeah, yeah, really quick question. Uh, and this may be a little bit off topic, but do, do you think summer is just going to sit there and rust? I mean, it's a real good question. I mean, I, I really don't know. Um, I don't think anybody can tell the truth on any of that. I mean, look at Belafont. I mean, and that's, that's even, even a harder story to talk about because that's going to be hopefully, hopefully, that's a plant with a um, worse, going to be a plant with a worse uh, quality assurance, you know, sort of record of everything they did when somebody or if somebody wants to try and, you know, complete or restart the project. Um, I hope the summer project is having, you know, a more thoughtful sort of, um, uh, you know, document saving or, you know, process of archival so that the potential does exist. But, you know, as I said before, Phil, you know, these, these, these energy, um, opportunities are moving quicker in some cases than, uh, we can see licenses pursued or we can see, you know, developers develop things and some are still, as we're seeing with the Vogel project now would have a few more years on it for completion. So it really, when, when that energy is needed for, you know, that community, it's really going to be a question for that community. Are they, you know, more interested in buying something from outside or they think it's going to be cheaper to finish Vogel or do they think it's going to be, cheaper to, you know, hopefully buy some off the shelf nuclear product that's cheaper than, you know, either option. You know, I, I believe that is is left to be seen. But what I will say is it's probably gonna be an uphill battle. What aspects of nuclear energy you find, you know, support on both sides of, you know, the political aisle and have you seen much bipartisan support? Oh, um, I'll take the uh, old favorite old TV show, uh, or excuse me, quiz the quiz show that the um, the old movie about the the quiz show from the seven from the fifties that was all the cheating. I'll take the first part last, if you don't mind, Phil. <laughs> um, okay, great. The but you know, nuclear tends to be one of the you know 
real strong bipartisan issues right now in 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 legislative processes related to uh clean energy in my opinion um there's a lot of bipartisan support for nuclear legislation not just you know related to like where the you know technology might exist in your district or you know who's factory is is where but related also to the fact that a lot of people are starting to recognize the clean energy attributes of um nuclear technology which tends to attract a lot of people you know more so nowadays bringing more people into the tent uh from the left and you know the not to say anything nuclear energy has always kind of been a um an interest topic for the right because it's kind of a, <clears throat> pardon me, a U.S. technology. It's, you know, jobs and, you know, strength of the economy and all that, you know, wonderful Ronald Reaganism and everything that, you know, people like to harp on. Um, and the, the, the opportunities to, you know, find a middle ground in between those two sort of areas with nuclear technology uh, tends to lend itself to, um, you know, a lot of bipartisan support. Um, I remember watching, which, um, you know, you can take a look at online, uh, you know, at, at the clean, at the clean air task, clean air task force website, or, you know, on the, you know, the government's website. But I remember watching, from my boss's testimony that the um the uh, uh at the at the, the senate committee that he was testifying before um you know there was a great interchange even in their opening statements between the you know democratic and republican senators discussing how uh you know this initial draft bill had been a um uh, an opportunity for them to work together to develop it and how they welcomed comment and discussion from both sides um, of the aisle as they tried to move the draft bill into, you know, what may be a, a final, uh, a final bill for submission. And, um, you know, in addition to that, my, my boss was the, um, the witness called by the, uh, one of the, the, a witness called by the, um, uh, the the left, the Democratic uh, minority on this committee, and um, the one of the witnesses called by the Republican majority is a um, was a is a lawyer in D.C. that's you know very deep on nuclear issues, and you know it would be the interplay between my boss and her, Amy Roma, I should, I, you know, give, you know, give credit where credit is due um, and identify her um, was great. You know, talking about, uh, you know, areas where we very much agreed and, um, you know, uh, offering an opportunity to the, for the other one to express uh, their expertise on questions being asked to each other. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I think, um, uh, nuclear. I actually had this conversation with some friends recently who were, you know, getting upset by what you generally hear in the, you know, news about the political process, uh, which in a lot of cases is, you know, 
you know, very accurate and it's not untrue about, you know, the infighting and the challenges, but, you know, sometimes watching a, you know, testimony like that or an interplay like that can be very refreshing and offer you, you know, a thought that, Hey, maybe, maybe this does work and maybe they can, you know, work together and cooperate and maybe compromise is the better way to, uh, you know, success in some of these cases. Cool. Okay. So you mentioned how Clean Air Task Force has a uh, you know inclusive approach to achieving clean air, and I'm aware that you sort of have a, a general set of goals um, in, for de- uh, decarbonizing the energy sector. Now, is is there? Can you give us like a summary of um, what that looks like, what the portfolio is, or if there's a particular uh, strategy? Um, so we, you know, we don't have an overall strategy for doing everything right now because I don't think, in all honesty, anybody does, and I think anybody saying they do would be um, uh, probably making a lot of assumptions and making a lot of guesses and everything. Um, and to me, <clears throat> we try to approach it in as um, effective a manner as we can. Um, uh, it's um, the beginning of, you know, I, I don't know when this this um, podcast will eventually be released, but the uh, I'm currently working on a paper with um, uh, some other focus areas at Clean Air Task Force, our um, maritime, uh, you know, sector or maritime shipping experts and our experts on um, uh, zero carbon or alternative fuels. And we're um, looking very much forward soon to releasing a paper about um, the opportunities and policy recommendations for, uh, you know, uh, decarbonization and new and the potential for nuclear energy's role in decarbonization in the marine sector. Um, so we see this as um, as trying to find the best opportunities to move things quickly. Um, uh, you know, global emissions from marine shipping is, I believe, like, you know, a, 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 like one, like, like two or 3% of, you know, overall global emissions. So if that's an area that can be decarbonized quickly, um, you know, that can play a large role. So we, we think that rather than, um, you know, making predictions or, you know, trying to analyze things that may be way, way, way too complex a system for anybody to analyze, let alone, um, you know, our, our very effective but small environmental organization, um, we go after those, you know, those, decar- those, those sectors that'll have big impacts. So electricity has been one area that we've, you know, worked on for many, many years. And, you know, we've, Actively engaged in state legislators, like it's in state legislatures like New Jersey and Illinois previously to see, you know, some of those, um, you know, and I guess, you know, I should Illinois with an asterisk at this point, right, Um, to see some of those state based policies that can see the the um, clean energy um, in, in those states valued more so that they're, you know, the nuclear clean energy valued more so that it can be maintained on the grid because, um, you know, number one, um, maintaining the existing fleet 
is, you know, uh, a, a, you know, a paramount to seeing, you know, our decarbonization goals achieved because every time we see a premature closure, uh, it is of course a step backwards, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, but- I've seen, I've seen that, uh, one of the most cost-effective way to keep emissions low is to not close nuclear power plants. Like that's the, that's the thing we can do right now. If we protect what we've got, that, that gives us a leg up for sure. Yeah. So a little bit of a meandering answer for you there, Colby, but we see a lot of different areas for nuclear to pay, play a role. Um, but then again, that all depends on a product because it's great to say that, you know, which, you know, our paper may say, you know, which I, I think it will say, it's great to say that there's an opportunity for nuclear to provide a zero carbon fuel or play a role, a small role in, you know, nuclear propulsion for some, you know, ship applications, small, small applications. Uh, but you really need a product. So yeah. it's, 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 it's great to look at, you know, what a lot of the developers are saying and try and model that and look at the price points and look at all those, uh, you know, opportunities. I like a lot to point to, you know, and maybe it's, you know, biased by my region, um, the Duke Energy Clean Energy plan that they put out, uh, maybe it was earlier this year, or maybe it was last year. I'm sorry, everything blends together with the pandemic. Um, the, uh, you know, in that, they talk about their, their goals for their energy distribution into the future. And they have a big block of power just blocked out that they call zero emission load following resources. Zelfers is the 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 acronym they like for to try and sell to everybody. So yeah, they're saying to everybody essentially, this is what we know we need, and this is where we think our energy grid needs to go in order to achieve, you know, the decarbonization and the goals that we're all talking about. But we don't know what's going to fill this block right now. Okay. So how much weight would you say uh, nuclear energy gets um, in, in your proposals? Uh, Are you talking about other, other options? Oh, well, I mean, I, th- like I said, we, you know, as a technology inclusive organization, you know, it, it, to us, it's not about waiting different proposals for different technologies, you know, and making sure that, you know, this money goes there, that money goes there, that it's about making recommendations or policy recommendations that um, uh, open the opportunities up to everyone. Um, You know, so that, that, you know, the, one of those areas that we are strong in our advocacy about that, um, you know, is is not you know certainly not directly a nuclear area and has a much larger umbrella is our advocacy for the adoption of clean energy standards versus renewable standards around the country. Um, we have a great map up on our website where we track uh, utility and state uh, pledges for uh, renewable versus clean energy standards and. Um, as you know, as the nuclear focus area leader and manager for clean air task force, um, it's, it's certainly challenging, uh, to think about more renewable 
energy standards or the passage of a renewable energy standard in any of these, um, you know, states or municipalities or, um, you know, uh, even at a federal level. So we would, you know, we are and we, you know, do, you know, pursue the more adoptions of clean energy standards because we think that's a way to see, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of, uh, even opportunity base for future technology, including nuclear energy. So, in, so instead of like an exclusionary renewable energy only policy, it's just a clean energy portfolio for states and utilities. Just exactly just to get exactly. everything in there. Exactly the difference between a renewable only, like say California or Hawaii, and a clean energy plan, like you would see in uh, many other states, are adopting now. Yeah, I did like to see how the renewable energy credits were were kind of being replaced by some uh, state governments with the zero emissions credits, and that that was a more inclusive system, from what I understand. I think that was the third or fourth week I was at Clean Air Task Force, and I was lucky enough to uh, get the opportunity to testify before the New Jersey uh, New Jersey State Legislature on their uh, zero energy carbon. Uh, zero energy credit um, legislation. So yeah, no, I mean this is um, this is this is something that's near and dear to my heart and to the um, you know philosophy of clean uh, the clean air task force, uh, clean energy standards. You know, hey, if if that becomes you know super cheap, ultra cheap wind and solar, if they you know and batteries everything changes in the next 10 years and, and, you know, it's a fun radical shift and very, very different. Well, that's, that's just great. You know what I mean? Um, but, um, the clean energy standards don't close the door on that and clean energy standards also don't close the door on nuclear. Should that not happen? Cool. Well, uh, this is maybe a little bit repetitive to some of the stuff you've already talked about, but uh, what policy work in the area of nuclear power is the Clean Air Task Force doing that might lead to serious legislation within the, let's say, the next five years or so? Hmm. Um, so one of the area, you know, we're like I said, we're very active in um, uh Advocacy for NILA, so we'd like to see some of those NILA provisions passed in the next couple of. Uh, I would I would like to say the next Congress, uh, but I'll say the next couple of Congresses, because you know I, I you got to keep your fingers crossed and everything and knock on wood, um, and um, uh, you know some of those things are things like power purchase agreements for or longer term power purchase agreements for nuclear technology which opens the door for um you know uh, uh you know nuclear technology is is operates for so long but it, the cost of it is 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 very is very front loaded so longer term power purchase agreements with the government for you know government energy needs um, you know, could open the door for some of these developers to see their technologies deployed more soon, uh, more quickly, excuse me. Um, the, you know, other areas that we're pursuing, um, you know, and many times we'd like to see and are seeing legislation happen now, 
Um, uh, we, you know, have been advocate, advocating for a restart of the low-dose radiation research program. Um, there was funding included in the House Energy package uh, for that. Um, I think it was 150, uh, close to $150 million over four or five years. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, we're active in the, um, area of, uh, you know, under gaining on uh, our area of gaining better understanding of the opportunities related to nuclear waste management. And we see the next couple of years as probably pivotal to seeing a, uh, better solution to nuclear waste management on a large scale in the United States. So yeah, I think there's lots of areas um, in addition to the you know couple that I just kind of rattled off where we we will see um, the opportunity for legislative change. Some of these things you know can be small or you know tend to be um, you know fall off the radar or things that people might not see as um, you know being the you know big sort of uh, um, showstoppers, but. Um, funding for a HALU transportation research program um, is certainly something that people need just as, you know, developers need just as much as, you know, um, some of these clean energy standards and other things that I, I was talking about previously. So uh, can we just uh, define that term? Are you referring to high enrichment, low enrichment uranium? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> HALU is high assay, low enriched uranium. So high okay. assay, low enriched uranium is anything that's 20% enriched or above, or excuse me, or below, pardon me, I'm dyslexic, 20% and below. So it's essentially um, a, a, an area where right now uh, vendors um, or developers, I should say, don't really have access to fuel because existing commercial fuel is limited at 5% enrichment. So that range from 5.01% or 0.001% to 19.99999% is kind of what the HALU access and, and the research into transportation and all the other opportunities that you might see discussed on, you know, a DOE website or, you know, on a developer webinar or something like that, um, because HALU offers, um, you know, new opportunities for designing different types of reactors like fast reactors, which some people are hopeful can, you know, play a large role in reducing um, existing, uh, you know, spent nuclear fuel stockpiles uh, in the future. So, yeah. So HALU's one of those pathways that uh, developers are, uh, you know, actively talking about and pursuing support from the government on. So that's a, that's an important point because in some ways, if if that policy doesn't allow for that type of fuel to be available, then that kind of blocks out a certain range of reactor designs that could be very helpful in our decarbonization goals. Well, if the law, the the rules have been changed, so that's where the doors kind of opened up. And right now, it's a supply issue. So <laughs> right now, it's an issue of where where do you get the stuff? Um, it's, Someone needs to open up shop. <laughs> well, it's not. It's not only that. We saw several hundred. I, I think it's several hundred million dollars um, uh, uh, given in a DOE program to Centris, 
maybe my scale is wrong. Maybe it's tens of millions of dollars, but uh, you know, a significant sum of money to Centris, which is a uranium enriching company, to pursue. Um, you know, development of additional centrifuges for HALU enrichment, but it's it, 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 that'll take some time. And right now, the only access that um, a developer would have for HALU is through the U.S. government, um, and that's could be down blended naval fuel or old um, experimental breeder reactor fuel. Um, and, um, in addition to saying that that's the only place you can source the original material from, there's only one commercial, I believe, yeah, there's only one commercial fuel fabrication facility in the country that could at this time manufacture that material into fuel. And that's, um, the BWXT company and the majority of their activities are related to defense and supplying naval reactors. So they're not really a commercial supplier, but they have the, they, they recently announced that they're interested in restarting their uh, Triso uh, fuel manufacturing line. But, uh, you know, outside of them, you're talking about uh, developers like Oaklo needing to either source unique supplies of Halo and then, um, source unique ways to manufacture it and source unique ways to transport it and return it to the plant and return it to its source and all that stuff, which is why a lot of people like, you know, Oklo and others are pursuing, uh, you know, perhaps a first site at, at INL, um, cause it reduces a lot of those challenges. Um, the, the Idaho national lab, I, I know, um, try so fuel. That's the pebble bed reactor fuel, right? Right. Sorry. I I went over, (laughs) I went over that. Uh, It's God, it's, um, I'll never get the acronym right because it's it's lost but to time at this it's point. It's the pebble bed reactor fuel, yes, the, the, yes. the spherical yeah, the uh, spheres, fuel, fuel balls. <laughs> spheres within spheres, essentially. Yes. Yeah. So that is something that BWXT previously made, hasn't made in a long time, um, but they're the only existing place where you could make something like that right now. Commercial. So that was a really a good example. Um, would, would you have like another example you can give us, uh, provide for us if, uh, if you were to write and pass a bill uh, policy-wise, like what, what would you think would be a high-impact uh, policy change that we could make right now? Oh, God. Well, I mean, I, I think I'll take it back. I know I touched on it uh, before, but I think, uh, you know, next couple of years are going to be pivotal, 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 pardon me, for the opportunities related to um, perhaps uh, finally seeing a concerted effort to have a national nuclear waste management policy that is more than just something on paper. So the um, you know we talked about we just talked about Halu. Um, you talk to a lot of people that um, are starting to get it about the clean energy aspects of nuclear energy and. Um, one of the follow-up questions that most usually comes or might be the very first one is, yeah, but what about the waste? Right. And, you know, that's, that's a very fair question to ask. The industry and the government have, you know, in many ways, and I say this as a former, you know, representative of the industry and everything, you know, have many ways let, let down 
the public trust in this particular sort of area. Some might argue that everybody lets down the public trust in the area of waste. And, you know, that's fine. I, I could, I can listen to that argument, but that doesn't change the fact that, you know, nuclear technology is held to a higher standard in many cases. And, um, you know, we, in a lot of cases, stand up to that standard, but in some cases we don't. Um, and I say we like I'm still a part of the industry. I apologize. <laughs> you know, but the, you know, so it, it it's it's not a good look for lack of, you know, better terminology. It's not a good look for, you know, even a, a prospective investor to be, you know, talking about trying to buy into a product or buy something, yada, yada, yada. And then they see the parking lot at, you know, wherever it is at Vermont Yankee or at another de decommissioned site. I think there's still fuel at Vermont Yankee. I'm going to be, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be stupid. I'm going to look stupid if there's not. You can say Pilgrim if you want. <laughs> okay, I'm just making sure. Well, replace that with Pilgrim. Um, but the, um, uh, the, you know, that that's, that's a site that a developer, you know, a, a, an investor or, you know, a purchaser or pursuer sees and, you know, it's great to tell them, oh, no, you know, that's not going to be the way it is. I have a sealed core. You know, you can do whatever. You know, we'll have a solution in 40 years by the time that's an issue for, you know, this plant. Um, you know, um, those aren't great answers in all my in, in all my opinion. So it'd be really great to see a national sort of nuclear waste policy i don't or you know or even better a sort of national nuclear fuel policy cradle to grave stuff like we were talking about about halu you know some fast reactor developers are really really ambitious and you know want access to plutonium for fuel and you know that's a, a proliferation you know issue that i don't even want to begin to get into on this call here but you know this these are things that like we should have, you know, a, a thoughtful national process or, you know, position on, I, you know, I, I think having a large, you know, one piece policy on that would be almost impossible to get past, but maybe doing it in parts and piecemeal, you know, over the course of several Congresses or, you know, something, but national waste management, you know, we need some progress on um, because it's 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 by it's way way beyond time at this point. So. What about what about like like big picture? Like when it comes not just to nuclear, but any carbon free or low carbon technology? Uh, would you do you guys support something like you know a carbon fee and dividend or a cap a carbon tax or anything like that? So, you know, in terms, you know, support is a very, very dangerous word, Phil, just, just so you know, I'm just, being, uh, just, just putting it out for there sure, for you, for sure. you know, um, the, it, you know, we like, we support, you know, like I said, clean energy, inclusive tech policies, but we also support policies that we think are passable. Okay. And if you look at, you know, sort of the, the, the discussion or the history on, you know, Things like carbon taxes, which a lot of nuclear advocates love to point to as be like, well, if only we had a carbon tax, then we would just have nuclear power plants everywhere, you know? And I think it's been on the, um, uh, as a state referendum in, in Washington state, 
twice already at this point. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty, you know, like undangerous area to be testing the waters on that sort of bill. You know, look at their government, look at some of the other policies, excuse me, their governor, look at some of the other policies they have there and everything. Um, you know, Washington tends to state, look at some of the other things going on in that region in the Pacific Northwest in otherwise, in terms of, you know, uh, progressive discussion in the, you know, in other policy areas in the United States right now. Um, and they can't pass it there. So, you know, that those things are great, but it's great to talk about, but if it, if it's, if you're not going to be able to pass it or if there's not enough support or, you can't achieve, you know, that compromise or that, you know, bipartisan support, you know, what's the point of just continuing to harp on it? That makes you sound like, you know, a psycho not to say anything. Not, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, that makes, you know, if you, if you say the same thing over and over again, expecting change, you know, that's the definition, right. of, you know, so that's, you know, I, I take that, that kind of discussion about the carbon tax or, you know, uh, or policy that's, sort of inclusive of clean energy technologies. And I take it back to what I was mentioning about clean energy standards, because, you know, that's exactly what you're talking about. It just isn't going to have people out in the streets like they were in France, you know, uh, protesting, you know, tax on their gasoline, uh, you know, because in all honesty, any of these taxes are just going to find their way right back to the ratepayer and to you and me. It's not like the you know the 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 companies are going to pay it in the end. You know, however the the bills are set up or whatever happens, I know that's they say they're not going to make that happen and they're going to be punished. But you guys know the politics is a dangerous game as well as I do. So um, you know the opportunities there make a lot of people put up their arms and say, you know, taxes are challenging. I don't want this, you know, no, none of these taxes. Whereas a lot of discussion related to clean energy standards or the opportunities related to clean energy standards and trying to say, no, just make all this clean instead of only renewables and you solve all the problem is kind of an easier discussion to have. I see. Yeah, that's so a, go after what we can get done. So right, work, work, work smart, not hard. Right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, that's true. Um, well, uh, do you have uh, any final thoughts? And uh, where can listeners learn more about you and the important work being done by Clean Air Task Force? Well, no, I mean, I don't have anything further, guys. I just say, you know, thanks so much for the opportunity to chat with you and for having me on and, you know, asking me to participate. This has been a lot of fun and I think it's been a great discussion. Um, if any of your viewers are interested in, um, or viewers, I should say listeners, God, where, do, you know, face for radio, right? I should know better. Um, if any of you uh, are interested in learning more about the Clean Air Task Force, you can find out more about us at uh, catf.us. Uh, um, that's our website. Lots of uh, interesting blog posts by yours truly on things from fusion energy commercialization to you know recently passed legislation to how that legislation impacts NRC changes. Um, and as well in the corner somewhere, you might see a little donate button. And if you like what you see, feel free to do so. So yeah, 
Clean Air Task Force. Um, we have social media pages as well, but you'll probably find the majority of uh, you know relevant information about our positions or the work done in some of the other focus areas on that website, catf.us. Great. Well, Brett, hey, it was an honor to have you on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks Great so much, chat. guys. I really appreciate it. Wow, Brett is a real wealth of information. He's clearly very passionate about the work he does in public advocacy and is very good at it. Clean Air Task Force is a great organization that genuinely wants to roll up their sleeves, build alliances, and put in the hard work of advocating towards a clean air future. Definitely. It's good to see nuclear so fairly represented as a strategy, working together with other carbon-free technologies to truly make a difference in the push forward in decarbonization. We very much appreciate the evidence-based, bipartisan approach Clean Air Task Force uses. More environmental organizations should aspire to those ideals. Exactly. And what I took away from the conversation is that it is really easy to have a plan of how things ought to be done. But once you engage with large groups of people with very different visions, you have to be nuanced. Like diplomacy, in order to get anywhere and come to an agreement, you must compromise and adapt your strategy as you go. That's why I think Brett and the good people at Clean Air Task Force are so amazing. Their strategy is a push for a future that a majority of people can agree on. Yeah, I think it's important to understand the engineering approach to large problems, which seeks to maximize the best solutions with math and modeling, as that's useful for understanding the potential of our technical options for long-term strategies. But the real world is messy, and especially in navigating politics, market systems, and societal constraints, I like what he had to say about going for the most achievable objectives by focusing efforts towards the goals that have high achievability and high effectiveness. Our conversation with Brett was a good reminder of this perspective and its importance when it comes to getting things done. We want to thank all of you for tuning in to this episode of Climate Fix Podcast called Fresh Air in the Halls of Power. We want to thank Brett Rompal and Clean Air Task Force for agreeing to participate in the conversation. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per-episode basis with Patreon. Link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, visit our website at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees, to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you can email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy.org all words. Again, that's main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time.